welcome to the second season of our Triune Pod. We are still preparing you to praise. Join me, the Reverend Nick Comiskey, and the Reverend Bendy Hart for a conversation about low-key theology, lived experience, and often unrelated pop culture as we break down one of the Psalms. We hope it's an inspiring, maybe a bit irreverent, but mostly helpful way to get you ready for some God time. Welcome back to the pod with the best content, our trying pod. Nick, how you doing? I'm well, Ben. Uh, you didn't even you didn't even rehearse that intro, but it was it was on point. I'm feeling good today. Feeling good right now. We'll you, see you in like three minutes, but yeah, you're literally drinking fuel as we speak. So I mean, of course it's you're giving on, me on my point. fuel. Hey, man. Uh, yeah, I just got back from New Orleans. Went for the very first time. Did a wedding, but also had a lot of free time. Super fun. Uh, what have you been up to? Taking care of my child, uh, taking care of church. Um, I went to a concert Friday night. Saw our Ooh. one of our one of our favorite bands, Titus Andronicus. New album, new album, The Will to Live. Um, very like classic rock. It was fun. We had a major storm here on Friday. That Hurricane Ian thing. Um, it wasn't a hurricane in North Carolina, but it was a lot of rain and a lot of wind. But we braved it. Me and a couple guys from the church and went and saw a rock and roll band. So it was fun. It's a good time. Awesome. I won't bore. Our- listeners with recounting the stories of Tyson Dranikas, but one of the best New York City concerts I've ever been to is with absolutely. this guy. Absolutely. Pre-pandemic, just rocking the building down. That's true. Well, man, I think you have something for uh, our unrelated this week. What were you thinking? Well, yeah, you were sharing before we started recording about this wedding you were doing, and it just made me think of any liturgical gaps that you've been the perpetrator of or witness of, you know, things that you've done in a service that was like, I wish I could take that back, or that was kind of funny or super off time. Ooh, or yeah. Like that. yeah, I mean, this is how good I'm doing on this pod already. I forgot that we had that conversation. But so this past weekend in New Orleans, again, a great American city, no city in America like it. I'm just living my dream. Finally, I had to do some work and we have the wedding. And I mean, this is a beautiful couple, amazing family, a wedding with maybe 40 people. And I'm starting with the, you know, the famous lines, dearly beloved, da 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 da. The bride is just so pumped for what's going to happen. Her father is in the front row. He's maybe five feet from her. He's in his upper 80s and he can't figure out when it's his turn to do a reading. So he is, I guess, talking to his wife or the people around him. And he's like, I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. Everyone in the room can hear. His wife is trying to silence him and she's being as loud, if not louder than him. So we get to vows and they're still talking. And I see the bride and groom like looking over. But what do you do? And I'm not going to be like, hey, dad, shut up. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But my gosh, let me talk about let me hear yours. And then I'll say something that I screwed up on because that was kind of me telling on someone else. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm about to do as well. And I, I don't know, this is not particularly funny, I suppose. It's actually not funny at all, but it was it looms large in my memory. So there's this moment in the funeral service, uh, prayer book funeral services called the commendation. And oftentimes it takes place like at a gravesite or at a columbarium, you know, and you'll commend the deceased to the Lord, you know, and oftentimes with ashes in the ground or with a body being lowered a coffin into the ground. And we were doing this funeral, this is a number of years ago. And every death is tragic, of course. This one uh, had a particular bite to it. And I was gathered with the family and, you know, relatives in like a waiting room before the service was going to begin. 
And at this church, and I'm sure at your church, our church here in Raleigh doesn't have one, but there's this role uh, a verger, which in our sense, it was a volunteer role, but the verger is kind of a masters in ceremonies of the, of the service. They kind of orchestrate and choreograph the different elements, different volunteers and everything, and kind of just kind of keep a handle on it. It's a helpful role when you have a complex service. Anyway, this verger, dear, dear, dear guy, very good at his role, but was kind of gathering the family and talking through the, the different elements of the service. And it was a room that was relatively like thick with grief and we get to that moment and he just goes and then he says okay and then nick you're gonna do the condemnation and i kind of like froze and looked at him and everyone kind of froze and looked at him but he didn't realize that he had said condemnation not commendation and then just went through the service and then like two seconds later we're like all right it's time to process in and the whole time i'm like that family thinks I'm going to condemn the deceased at the end of this service. And luckily I disabused him of that and apologize, you know, and the verger apologized profusely, but it was, I mean, it's funny now, but at the time it was pretty horrifying, honestly. Oh yeah. Especially with how you led the story about it being not a great funeral. Yeah. People yeah. know what we mean. Yeah. One more thing before we start. I, the very first time I did communion, I was, you know, the body of Christ, blood of Christ. I raise up the chalice. I put it down too hard. The wine literally jumps out of the chalice in the air. The two people beside me see this. I see this. In that split second panic, the wine miraculously all falls back in the chalice. Wow. And that's when I learned that our Lord is present in the elements. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that's good. All right. Um, oh, yeah, you're hosting. Hit Psalm 111. Hallelujah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright in the congregation. Great are the deeds of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. His work is full of majesty and splendor and his righteousness endures forever. He makes his marvelous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He gives food to those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the lands of the nations. The works of his hands are faithfulness and justice. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, because they are done in truth and equity. He sent redemption to his people. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who act accordingly have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. All right, Nick, take it away. Well, this is one of those Psalms where the trees, a few of the trees or individual verses or phrases are rich, but it can be hard to see the forest, at least for me as a reader and as a hearer, it's kind of hard to not think of it as just a collection of beautiful, but somewhat isolated verses. And the way my brain works, at least is I, I really like structure and it's hard for me to understand something without saying the whole. So one, one way to think about this Psalm is it opens with a individual in the midst of the congregation, but an individual giving thanks and saying, God, with my whole heart, I will praise you, you know, hallelujah. And verse two, great are the deeds of the Lord is the kind of thesis statement. And what the psalmist does over the next seven, eight verses is unfold the different deeds of the Lord that caused him, the psalmist, to, to erupt in thanksgiving. And so that theme, you know, the deeds of the Lord, what are the deeds of the Lord that the psalmist praises? And I don't know if you can pin 
a particular event, a specific event in the life of Israel that is attached to this occasion for Thanksgiving. I think one way to understand it is the psalmist is using the Exodus event, God's liberation of the children of Israel as this kind of paradigm for what Mm -hmm. God does, right? So what does God do in the world? God does Exodus events. God grants freedom. God breaks tyranny. God provides and, and conquests and gives provision. So this Psalm is in some ways an unfolding of the Exodus events that take place for the people of God in every generation, you know, God's always in the business of granting freedom, breaking tyranny, providing. And yeah, I think in some ways, as much as I can tell, that's the forest ace. An individual saying, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Your deeds are great. And what your deeds are in different ways is this idea of the exodus, granting freedom and breaking tyranny. There's the kind of that talk of of the covenant of God keeping his covenant of promise and also establishing the covenant where we are to obey. Mm-hmm. And I guess you really see that toward the end, that verse 10. I think it was saying the first verse is kind of praise. Verses two and following are the reason for that praise. This psalm is probably meant to be with Psalm 112, the next psalm. And that kind of transition of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God keeping God's covenant via his mighty works, and then the precepts are what we're supposed to be doing. And the next psalm really gets into what we're supposed to be doing is part of this whole thing. Yeah, I guess part of following the covenant of God is not just obeying commandments, but also singing praise. Mm. So in the very act of singing this psalm or saying this song in our congregations or at home, we are voicing the covenant back to God. We're doing our part, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think one way to, you know, to, uh, this is obviously a, a spiritual reading of the psalm, but one way to make meaning of what we see in verse five, he gives food to those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. I think that originally referred, of course, to the children of Israel traveling through the desert, receiving manna, that miraculous provision. And there are absolutely, probably the majority of global Christians have a much more tangible connection to that sense of God providing food for readers in the minority world like us. That idea of, uh, yeah, I mean, I eat all the time. I there's I have a refrigerator in my office. It's stacked with food. But um, as I read this psalm, the way that God's faithfulness to His covenant expresses itself in the giving of food, I think, of course, of of the Eucharist. You know, the God who gives bread gives Himself as bread. And what we do on Sunday mornings is to we don't establish the new covenant, but we rehearse the giving mm-hmm. of the new covenant as God gives Himself to us in bread and wine. I'm sure you're familiar with this quote, Ben. Uh, Augustine made much of the kind of significance of even eating the Eucharist in the way that that is, is, it reverses the order of how we normally digest food. Here's, here's what he says. This is from uh, the Confessions. And normally, we eat something and we digest it, and then it becomes part of our body. But in the Lord's Supper, we eat bread, body, and it digests us and makes us part of the body of Christ. Food in that way is this highly, highly charged spiritual act where we don't just consume it, it consumes us and we become what we eat. You know, by, by partaking of the body of Christ on Sunday morning, we are reconstituted, as it were, as the body of Christ. And I think in some ways that 
social dimension of the Eucharist is probably for me a more meaningful way of of approaching it than even as an individual. There's nothing wrong with thinking about it, you know, as an individual, like I'm going to get the medicine of immortality, right? But I think, especially from my vantage point as a minister, you know, whenever I receive the Eucharist, I'm like on, like I'm literally on a stage and it, it doesn't have a personal sense to it. But as I'm serving it to hundreds of people, like you do, you know, you're mm-hmm. serving it to hundreds of people. You see how this active eating, even in a sociological sense, unifies, but in a spiritual sense, you can kind of have a, in the eyes of your heart, kind of see how God is giving himself to us in bread. And by that unified active eating, we are becoming one body, you know, one loaf, the body of Christ. That's why I want it every week. There's that line that you can say in giving communion that is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And I've always kind of rolled my eyes at that because it's like, what does that even mean? But when you think about it like that, the body of Christ, the manna, of heaven, the gift yeah. of God, the food that he gives to those who fear him. When you think about it like that, it becomes powerful totally. um, in the moment. Something else I'd found interesting about this psalm is so often when I think of the works of God, when I think of the Exodus, I think of the people of God being delivered from slavery. And for me, it just stops there. But in a psalm like this one, and probably the overall witness of the scriptures, I've just been mostly blind to it. It's the liberation from oppression. It's being with them in the wilderness, providing food, the manna and the quail from heaven, but also being established in the land. And one of the things that may be a little bit troubling is he gave you this land that essentially wasn't other people's land, but he he set it for his people. Now, again, I, th- I think we can kind of spiritualize this for the Christian life, how we appropriate this as the church, but it's it's not just for me in my, I was once really lost and now I'm found, or maybe you're like me and you never knew at least a good testimony story of being lost, but I mean, we were all lost. It is God being with us the whole way, providing for us, giving us that new manna from heaven, and finally establishing us with him in the kingdom at the end. So it's kind of like this holistic picture mm. of the Christian life, of the life of the people of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that verse, so that verse reads, he has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the lands of the nations. And yeah, I mean, I think readers from the very beginning, it's not just a modern sensibility, have been like unsure what to make of the conquest <laughs> because it is, you know, God's people get the land, but that land had other occupants. And you can obviously think of all the terrible instances of Christian history of people colonizing others. But again, a spiritual reading, you know, he gave them the lands of the nations to think about the church as this, this gathered people, the people of God, and the way that the church in all of its diversity participates in, in, in some ways, uh, redeems. That's not right. That's not exactly the right word, but the way that the worship of the church is this elevation of all the different cultures of the earth, right? Mm. You know, like there are Christian hymns and, and praise songs and liturgies and literally every language. And you can, uh, you know, the worship of heaven is, is a global phenomenon, And it's easy to take that for granted in some respects, but it is pretty remarkable that the church is this transnational, transcultural entity that absorbs the best of every culture and uses what is in every culture to glorify and praise God. I remember, I I might've told you this story before, but 
I was in this church, this is like 20 years ago. And it was, you know, we would take passages from the Bible and pray them and, and personalize them like you do, of course. And uh, someone was, was talking from a passage in Isaiah, I think about the nations and God sending his servants to the nations. And he was saying like, yes, I want to be a servant that goes to the nations. And I remember this person kind of sitting next to me. He's like, don't you realize, man, like we are the nations, <laughs> you know, like we were not part of this plan originally, you know, and we are not the center of this drama. Like we are the nations. And so that the church, you know, in a place like America, it's obviously endemic to think about ourselves as the chosen people, but in reality, from the perspective of the Bible, you know, we are the nations and our culture is in some ways alien and has been absorbed into the worship of God. And, and that's, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Ending on a convicting word. Thanks for that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Psalm 111. Hallelujah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the assembly of the upright in the congregation. Great are the deeds of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. His work is full of majesty and splendor and his righteousness endures forever. He makes his marvelous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He gives food to those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the lands of the nations. The works of his hands are faithfulness and justice. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever because they are done in truth and equity. He sent redemption to his people. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is, is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who act accordingly have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. How about that episode of Our Trying Pod? Now that you've been prepped for praise, won't you do us a solid and subscribe and review? We promise to keep the outlandish illustrations coming. So be sure to join us for another episode of your absolute favorite podcast. Podcast.